0: The readings from 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving, an, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten You may be seated and take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. So we're all decorated up for vacation Bible school, and uh, that looks pretty cool. That starts tomorrow, so yes, the chaos will ensue tomorrow. Uh, That'll be great. I was gone yesterday. I was out of town with my family, and uh, I came back last night to run through the sermon. And I noticed that the kitchen has been transformed into TD's Tiki Hut, where the menu is apparently pineapple and spam. Is that right, Meg Delapola? Spam and tropical smoothies. Spam and tropical smoothies. What? What am I? What's this? What's the association with me and spam? I don't understand. I'm insulted. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. I love Meg. I just, that's weird. Anyway, I'm looking forward to this week. It'll be, I'm sure, an exhausting week, but it'll be a great week uh, because we get to minister the gospel to a whole bunch of kids who come, many of them, from uh, homes where Christ is not taught. So win-win, right? It's an amazing opportunity that we have this week. And thank you for all joining in to help. Well, there's a battle going on in the, you know, I'm gonna say there's a battle going on in the church these days. Uh, it doesn't look like this, but it's my, this is my uh, Gen Xer interpretation of a battle, right, okay? So there's a battle going on in the church today, and the battle really is going on between two different streams of theology, and let me explain. There's, there's one stream of theology that would say And this is a very predominant stream. It's a very popular stream. This stream sells books. It sells videos. It takes in big donations. It it has mega churches. And this stream of theology goes something like this. When Jesus said that he wants us to have life and life abundantly, what he meant by that is he wants us to be comfortable, healthy, wealthy, and just have abundant life here on the earth. Yeah, as somebody in the front row said, as Mark said, to live your best life now. But there's another stream of theology that says Jesus did indeed say that he wants to give us life and life abundantly, life to the fullest. But what that means is a bit different than what the flesh would tell us that that means. Yes, in this life there will be joy, certainly. But there will also be sorrow. There will also be suffering. And ultimately, the destination that we're going to reach through that that combination of joy and and suffering and hardship is Christ-likeness. And eventually, we're going to be with him forever. And my challenge to you this morning, as we read through this text, well, we already read through it. uh, Dr. Matt read it to us. My challenge to you as we look at this text is as you read 1 Peter 2, I can't imagine that somebody could be more clear about the pattern that Christ laid down that we're supposed to walk in. Does that pattern that that Christ, that's referred to by Peter, does that pattern more aptly fit your best life now interpretation of the Bible? Or does it more fit the interpretation that we kind of hold near and dear here at Delaware Bible Church. And I would argue that it's the latter. That the purveyors of the prosperity gospel are indeed lying to us, all the while uh, wearing their fancy suits, flying in their expensive private planes and, and building their empires on the earth. They're teaching a false doctrine. And I say that, and I say, okay, this is easy, let's just, uh, let's just get to what's real, but every once in a while when we touch upon this doctrine that we're going to be talking about this morning, which is the doctrine of suffering, I think there's part of us that wants to run to, yeah, but your best life now. God wants me to be happy, he wants me to be healthy, he wants me to be whatever, We've got to be careful with this doctrine. It's a very, very important doctrine. In fact, I would say it's critically important if we're, going to, if we're going to live the way Christ is asking us to live. So the big question this morning is, how should Christians think about suffering? And I think that this is actually the wrong question. It should be, how should we think about suffering, but also, how should we suffer? Because this text goes into that. It gives us some practical ways uh, to, to endure suffering, and so I've called this sermon the magnificence and method of suffering. So it's it's not just about what suffering is and how beautiful it is, but it's also about how we should do it. Now, suffering—I'm just going to say right out of the gate—suffering uh, is not a fun topic. When you when you go out into the world and you share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others, you probably don't lead with, "Hey." Just let you know, before we even get started, what I'm about to tell you means you're going to suffer. No, we start with the reality that there's sin and sin has separated us from God and, and that Christ has come and he's perfect and he's, he's paid the penalty. We, we start with all that. And eventually, as they get into God's word and they, and they see, as we lead them through God's word and they see how Christ lived, they, we come to the reality a little bit later on, oh, This path that Jesus walked is often a path of suffering, and he's called us to also suffer. So let's get into the text and just see what it has to say this morning, and I'm going to tell you right off the bat that I'm going to do this weird. I'm going to approach this text in a very strange way. I'm going to start with the very beginning of verse 21, and then I'm going to go and work from the back forward. I'm going to work from verse 25 back to the front. So I know I'm strange, but that's what I'm going to do. All right, first point I wanna make this morning is Christians are called to suffer for doing good. Look at what it says in verse 21. For to this you have been called. To this you have been called. Now, what is this? What is that word this? What is that referring to, right? Uh, Well, let's look. Uh, It says, I'm gonna pick it up in verse 18 of 1 Peter 2. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and to the gentle, but also to the unjust, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, uh, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this... You have been called. So what is the this? It's suffering even though you're doing good. That's what this is. You are, to su- you are called to suffer for doing good. Now, <clears throat> I want to make another point, and that is this. Uh, typically, when we talk about a calling, when we as Christians in our christian ease kind of way, because, you know, we have our own language, right? Uh, when we talk about a calling, are we typically talking about a good thing or a bad thing? Good thing, right? I've been, call, I think, you know, uh, you might hear a young man say, I think the Lord is calling me to full time pastoral ministry. You might hear uh, a young person say, I think the Lord is calling me into missions work overseas. Uh, you might hear uh, a friend here at church say, I really believe the Lord has called me to be a witness, to be his witness in my workplace. These are all wonderful things. But I want to point out to you this morning that we may be tempted to think differently about this kind of calling because what he's saying is Christians have been called to suffer. What? This does not fit the Joel Osteen way of life, like at all. Not a bit. So what's he saying? Well, in the context, let me just, Recover some ground. In the context, we've been talking, Peter's been talking about suffering under a government, even though you're behaving like a good citizen, right? Or suffering for being punished by an employer or a master if you're a slave or employer if you're an employee, even though you're doing good. Now, again, it's easy for us to think, automatically to associate suffering with bad. And we don't want it and we want to avoid it. We want to get away from it. And I'm not saying that we should be a glutton for punishment and and want uh, to have needless suffering, but I'm simply pointing you to the fact that uh, we are to be a people who suffer, who do good, and if that doing good happens to cause suffering, that we're to be okay with that. Turn to Acts chapter uh, five, Acts chapter five, verse forty one. Well, we'll go a little bit before that. Acts chapter 5. So this is an episode where, you know, typical in the book of Acts, the, the apostles are getting in trouble for ministering the gospel, right? They're getting in trouble with religious leaders, government leaders, whatever. They're getting in trouble for ministering the gospel. So look at pick it up in verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. I don't know why they chose to let them go. Maybe they let them go because they thought that the beating would convince them that they ought to just shut up because that's what most people would do, right? If, If I brought you in and I said, look, I'm gonna beat you. And if I see you going to Walmart again, you're gonna get it. Leave and don't ever go to Walmart again. That's a dumb example. But you probably would say, well, I probably ought to stay away from Walmart. I'll try Meyer. It's a dumb example. But look at what it says in verse 41, the very next verse. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name and then look at what happens in verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, that the Christ is Jesus. They accepted the suffering. They rejoiced in the suffering. They carried on doing the good work in spite of the possibility and the potential of further suffering. These people are nuts. They're crazy. I, uh, young people, can I talk to you for just a minute? I'm, I don't know what young means, maybe under 20? I don't know. Can I talk to you for just a minute? <clears throat> I think the apostles were being savages. I'm using that in the young people vernacular, right? They're being savages. They're like, oh, you're going you're to punish us for doing good? Well, we're just going to keep on doing good. This is our calling. And if you can understand a little bit of the mentality that the apostles had, if you can begin to comprehend that they, they, they thought themselves, they, they rejoiced when they considered for a moment that they somehow found themselves worthy enough in the eyes of God to, to receive beatings for proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. If you begin to understand what made them tick, then you're starting to get it and starting to understand how we should think and how we should follow this pattern. This is our calling. We are called to do good and if, and if necessary, suffer for it. It's that important. So let's back up. Let's go back to 1 Peter and let's go all the way to verse 25 and work our way backwards. The second point I want to make is this. Through Jesus' suffering, okay? So Jesus suffered and something happened. Through Jesus' suffering, Christians are out of peril. Look at verse 25 for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The first sub point I want to make is that we are now in a place of safety. We are now in a place of safety. What do I mean by that? Well, listen, I'm, I hear that you say, I hear people say that they love my farm stories. You might not like this one, Okay. I grew up on a livestock farm. We had about, a, at any given time, roughly a 1,000 head of hogs on the farm, most of which were living outdoors. They had a place to go sleep at night, but they would, they would roam around outside. If, if uh, we had had our farm operating the way it did back then today, we could sell our meat at a premium because it would be free-range pork, <laughs> right? But we didn't, that wasn't a thing back then, so we just sold it as normal. Anyway... Hogs uh, hogs are not very intelligent creatures. Uh, They like to test the limits of the boundaries that they've been given every single day. A hog will touch the electric fence every day to make sure that it's still there. A cow will touch it once and say, oh, there's an electric fence there, my bad. And they won't go near the electric fence again, but a a pig will touch it every day. And so occasionally, uh, um, and by the way, I've been shocked by the electric fence dozens of times and I lived through it. I once, got, I once bent down to do some work and got shocked. I got the electric fence right across my forehead. I'm fine. <laughs> so this is not an inhumane thing. Actually, what I'm about to share with you keeps the, keeps the animals safer, because here's what happened. Every once in a while, the hogs would get out. They'd get out of the fence, or they'd escape, and um, we would have to herd them back in. There's lots of different ways to do that. One way is to just feed them in the pen and open the gate, and they'll run back in to get the feed, then you close the gate. Ha ha, tricked you usually they're not that intelligent. And so uh, we'd have to herd them back in and all this kind of stuff. But one day, and again, I lived in a very rural area, no highways for miles around. And if if you drove past our farm, we lived up a long lane. If you drove past our farm, chances are you lived in the neighborhood or you were the milk delivery truck. The, the truck, it's not really delivery, it's more like milk pickup. They would, this truck was a big tanker truck and it would go from dairy to dairy collecting their milk that they had taken from the cows. And, and, and the milk truck was known for being big and full of milk and going fast on the road. It just, you know. Well, one day, uh, a bunch of hogs got loose from the fence and we, hur- we corralled them all in or, or we thought we had. One apparently got loose and, got, and went down the long lane and found himself on the road. I don't know what hogs are doing on the road. There's nothing to eat on the pavement. But um, he was by the road, and the milk truck came by. And the only reason that we know that that hog got loose is because there was a greasy spot on the road where he used to be. <laughs> it was not a pretty sight, and it did not smell good. What I'm saying is, is that when an animal gets away from the herd, when it gets away from its owner or the shepherd or whatever, it becomes very dangerous for that animal. And in this context, what do we see? It says, we were, you were straying like sheep. We were people. We are, you know, before we became Christians, we were sinners and we were trying to do life our way. We were straying away from God, trying to get away as far away from him as possible trying to do life our own way. And in this world, there are dozens, if not hundreds of philosophies that you can buy into about what life is all about. And so we were in a place of danger because if we die in our sin and we do not receive the forgiveness of, Jesus, uh, forgiveness of our sin through Jesus Christ, when we die, we go to a place that Jesus describes as a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, a place of eternal torment, a place called Hell. But I love the next phrase in verse 25, but, but have, you have returned now to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It doesn't say we were forced back to the shepherd and overseer of souls, but it says we've returned. You see, this is why I love uh, verbal plenary inspiration of scripture. Sorry, theology nerd alert. Every word in God's word matters. Every tense, every verb, everything matters. Notice what it says. You have returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul. Can I ask you this? What wooed you to God? What wooed you to a relationship with Christ? Was Was it the rules of Christianity that wooed you back? It wasn't for me. What, would, what what brought you back into the fold? I'll tell you what it was for me. It was, the, it was the understanding that I am totally incapable of saving myself. It was the understanding that God demonstrated his love for me in that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. That love is what attracted me to the shepherd, to the overseer. And I'm guessing that for many of you, that would be your testimony as well. That suffering that he went through, understanding the price that he had to pay to rescue a knucklehead like me, drew me to him. So you were once string like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Uh, Speaking of the shepherd analogy, in John 10, 27, Jesus said this, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. We're back to a place of safety. It's funny, I, I, this is just an observation. I'm not trying to be political this morning at all, but we're funny people, right? For the last two years, we've really spent an enormous amount of time, effort, energy combating a global pandemic. We've, we've expended enormous amounts of resources for this virus uh, to, to try to stay safe. We've locked down, we've wore masks, we've practiced social distancing. I don't know how much hand sanitizer I used in the last two years, but do you find it interesting? Do you find it interesting, as I do, that in the midst of all this, we very rarely ask ourselves, as a culture, I'm talking about as a, as a people, as, as the people of the United States, we very, we very, very infrequently ask ourselves the question, what's going to happen to me when I die? What is the meaning of this life? In other words, we're very concerned about our physical safety, our physical health, but we seem to be less concerned about our spiritual safety. Anyway, uh, while we have perhaps, <laughs> this is me trying to be cute and, I, and just so take this tongue in cheek. While we may have, we may be moving out of and, and clearing the... Uh, global pandemic of COVID-19. I think we're descending further into a spiritual mega pandemic, right? Where people, lost souls, just not understanding the gospel, the church not spreading the gospel. Uh, Anyway, we're at a place of safety. We're also at a place of guidance. I, I think that's what it's talking about, the overseer of your souls. God is concerned about your spiritual well-being, your spiritual health. He's, he's given us his word uh, to tell us the things that, that draw us closer to him and tell, teach us to avoid the things that, that separate us from him. In other words, he's defined what is right and wrong, what is good and bad, and he's telling us what's good for our soul. We ought to listen. I, I think of Psalm 23 when I think of, of this uh, I think of Psalm 23 when I think of this analogy of the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You know, the Lord is my shepherd. He sh- I shall not want, and it goes on to talk about, you know, he leads me into green pastures and makes, he meets me, lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters uh, and all these things. But there's an there's a analogy in there of the shepherd who, who has a rod and staff, right? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You ever thought about what that means? The rod is to beat off like attackers, like wolves and stuff, and to protect the flock. The staff is for guidance to lead the flock, right? And by the way, I, I, heard, this, I heard this this very morning, so this is, this is like fresh in my mind. <clears throat> Leadership, ugh, this is going to get me in all kinds of trouble. Leadership is not me guiding you where you naturally want to go. Leadership is not Christ guiding you where your flesh wants to go. Leadership is guiding you into the right way. Even if that's not what you think you want to do at this red hot moment. Leading you where you want to naturally go, that's just pandering. That's That's just me you know, I'll lead you where you want to go and then and then you'll 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 like me. Jesus is leading us in a place that is absolute into a place that is absolutely against our flesh, but it's the right direction. It's what's good for our souls. The overseer of our souls wants us to say no to sin and yes to him. No to sin, yes to righteousness, as he defines it. So we're at a place of safety and we're at, a place, we're at a place of guidance. Matthew 10, 28 says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. How is this made possible? How is it made possible that we're, we've returned to, we've exited a place of peril and we re, we've returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls? Jesus wooed us by his love but through his suffering. Got to remember that. Jesus' suffering on the cross really matters. Next point I want to make is found in verse 24. Uh, Through Jesus' suffering, critical accomplishments were made. Verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. There's a picture of suffering right there, the crucifixion. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. This is very simple. Uh, Jesus accomplished something on the cross that that our suffering could never accomplish. Why? Because he is the perfect spotless lamb of God. He's never sinned. He's God in the flesh. We could never accomplish this because we're all broken, but he gave us the opportunity to die to sin, for sin to lose its grip on our lives and for that grip that it had on us to be released So that we could do the next thing, which is the opportunity to live in righteousness. I went too fast. Many of you are feverishly taking notes. So the first one is the opportunity to die to sin. And the next one is the opportunity to live in righteousness. God has not only saved us from our sin, but he has given us, he's lavished us with gifts. Those gifts come in the form of the word of God, the Bible, in the Holy Spirit, taking up residence in our life to convict us of our sin and to oversee our transformation into Christ-likeness using, as I always say, the exact right recipe customized for you of blessings, of trials, of suffering, of all these things that God allows in your life to to shape you, to mold you into Christ-likeness. And he does it, he also lavishes upon us the gift of the church, the gift of each other. That in the fellowship of the saints, we can go through these things together, supporting one another. And as we support one another, we learn in the process too, right? We sacrifice, we practice self-sacrifice in the process, and it it all works together to shape, for God to shape his people into the image of his son. And then it says that we have the opportunity to experience healing. Now, I just want to say a word, uh, sidetrack here for a moment. Uh, For those of you with short attention spans, you'll like this. Uh, I have heard it quoted before I have heard this verse quoted before by his wounds you are healed I've heard that quoted in the context of physical healing of a ailment and I ask you the question because the first three rules of Bible interpretation are what? Context, context, and context. Those are the first three rules of Bible interpretation. So in its context, is Peter here talking about physical healing? Not at all. He's absolutely, absolutely talking about spiritual healing. So when he says, by his wounds you have been healed, he's not talking about healed from cancer, although we can pray for that, or healed from uh, COVID-19, although we should pray for that as well. But he's talking about something greater than those things, which is the healing of the sin problem that we had, the healing of our soul. So these, the suffering that Jesus went through, it was critically important. It accomplished key tasks. So in this, la, in this final point, we see this. In our calling to suffer, we should follow the example of Christ. And in verses 21, or the latter part of verse 21, all the way to 23, we see the example that Christ gave. Let's read. For to this you have been called. What is this? Suffering, even though we're doing good. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. There it is. Leaving you an example. An example implying that we should follow it, we should walk in it, we should live in it, right? And here's the example. Oh, sorry, it also says, so that you may follow in his steps. Here we go, verse 22. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. So here's a few points to consider from those verses. Suffering is not an excuse for us to sin. But pastor, you say, but pastor, uh, whenever I'm going through a tough time, whenever I'm being uh, persecuted for doing good, I always find it helpful to retaliate against those who are causing my suffering. That's not the way of Christ. Jesus, I'm sure you are aware of the the, uh, the account, but if you read the four gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, especially the first three, and you see the unfolding of the trials that Jesus went through. I'm talking about the the civil and religious trials that Jesus went through. They had to find, they had to drum up witnesses, and and even in the proceedings of of drumming up these witnesses, the the witnesses couldn't agree i mean they tried to concoct a lie and the witnesses couldn't agree it was a sham of a trial and jesus could have very easily said you guys are kidding me right this is a complete joke of a trial what are we doing here justice is not being served he didn't he didn't he might have been true in saying that he he did not he chose not to sin not that that would have been a sin i 'm saying he could have tried to bust out of there and run away, and everything like that. It, it, he did not use suffering as an excuse to sin it says there was no deceit found in his mouth we don 't use suffering suffering is not an excuse to twist the truth. I find that uh, I find that um, in our Christian culture that we, that we exist in, when somebody somebody tries to this is a very common thing by the way somebody, a ministry organization, an individual, somebody who's a Christian goes out into the public and, says, and makes a statement that is very biblical and true. And then the culture comes after them and the knives come out and they start to dismantle them and say, "You're a they call names. You're a hater, you're a bigot, you're, a, you're afraid of something, you're a phobe, something phobe. And on and on it goes. And so that ministry leader left in the In the situation of of suffering, his reputation, her reputation suffering for what they said, even though what they said was true, uh, may have a tendency to back off and say, just kidding, or you took my words wrong, or whatever, and they start to backpedal, right? Uh, Jesus did not do that. Jesus uh, did not twist the truth, he stuck to what was true. Suffering is not an excuse to scorn. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. In other words, he did not use his words to tear down the people that were the instigators, that were the propagators of his suffering. He did not do that. He did not scorn. How easy is it in this world that we live in of social media to hop on and just unleash Unleash the scorn. Unleash the reviling words against people with which with whom we disagree, or perhaps people that we think are uh, uh, operating in untruth or not, or sinfully so. Whatever he did not scorn. When he was when he suffered, he did not threaten. Suffering is not an excuse to threaten. I want you to imagine how much different we would think about Jesus if while he's hanging on the cross, his body completely bloody, probably just a pulp of a human being, you know, his, the, with the floggings and the beatings and the, and the nails and the hands and the feet and all this, and, and the crown of thorns on his head, and the sign above his head that was a mocking, taunting sign, it was designed to be that way, said, so this is the king of the Jews, that in all of that, Jesus did not hang on the cross and use his final words, or some of his final words, to say this. When I come back, y'all are going to get it. Or wait till my daddy gets a hold of you. <laughs> Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What? What kind of grace did Jesus, the Savior of the world, extend to the very people that were the instigators of his suffering for doing good? That's all he was doing, was suffering for doing good. What kind of grace, what kind of stuff did Jesus give them that they did not deserve in that moment when he uttered those words, Father, forgive them? it buttresses the reality that Jesus has, that the word of God tells us that God desires ultimately for all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Amazing, amazing. Suffering is not an excuse to threaten. Suffering is an opportunity to trust God. It says he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I said a few weeks ago, I, I've been saying that uh, one of the things that I think the Christians really, we, one of the things that we really get ourselves snarled up with is the idea, is the understanding of life where we, we know that there's God's revealed will as he has revealed it in his word, the Bible, there's God's revealed will, and then there's God's sovereign will. That's the part we don't know. We don't know if we're going to die by the end of the day today, right? We don't know if we're, there's going to be a tragedy or if, I don't know, if somebody's going to walk down the street and find a million dollars. We don't know. That's all part of God's sovereign will, and we don't know it. But, but brothers and sisters, I fear sometimes that we look at the world and we claim that we do know God's sovereign will, and we ignore his revealed will oftentimes. We don't know what God's doing in the current political system situation. We know it's corrupt. I think that we're wise enough and, and not foolish enough to see that there's a lot of corruption in our government. But what is God What is God doing with that? What, how is God using that? To change the lives of people. We don't know, but we pretend we do. We pretend that we know that His will is that so and so get elected next time or such and such happen with this law or that. We don't know. That's God's sovereign will. We do know God's revealed will, and that's where we're called to live. And so take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter six just for a minute so that I might illustrate this before we wrap up. You know the story? Daniel chapter six is Daniel in the lion's den. But you read Daniel chapter six in 2021 and it feels like it's happening right now. <laughs> it feels like this could this could play out this week in the news right or in uh, in washington d c you know Daniel is a high government official in the Persian Empire he's a jew who is a uh, he fears God, he prays to God and he's living in in a pagan empire but he is a good guy and he has endeared himself to the government and he's worked his way up to a high position. Daniel chapter 6 it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give an account give account so that the king might suffer no loss then this Daniel became distinguished above the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So Daniel is a rising star in the Persian empire, right? He's a rising star in the king's eyes and he is on his he's he's ascending, he's on his way up and he's about to be number 2 in command under the king, right? He, he desired to set, he planned to set him over the whole kingdom the high officials and tra- satraps sought to find ground for a complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him okay listen i i don't know how much you pay attention to the news and politics but don't don't you don't you see it every time i don't care what party we're talking about it could be the green party I don't know, whatever party, Republican, Democrat. But every time there's somebody who, who's a rising star in one of those parties, what does the other party try to do? Find some dirt, drag them down, trash their name, throw lawsuits, 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 accusations, smear them in the public sphere. That's, that's what these guys are trying to do, right? Verse five, then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and the satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. Here's the flattery. All the high officials of the kingdoms and the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Now, the king's probably feeling very flattered. Everybody's going to only pray to me for the next 30 days. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, so keep in mind, Daniel is aware of the unfoldings in the government. He's He's not ignorant of them. He knows what's going on. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went into his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. That's a, those words are absolutely huge. As he has done previously. Notice what Daniel didn't do. Daniel didn't go into his house, up to his upper room, and grab his prayer mat and go Okay, you're going to make this law. I'm going to go right out to the public square, right in front of the, uh, the palace, and I'm going to unroll my mat, and I'm going to pray towards Jerusalem. He, did not, he didn't provoke. Daniel also didn't start a new prayer habit, like, well, I wasn't really praying before, but now that they've outlawed it, I'm going to make it a point to pray three times a day towards Jerusalem. He didn't do that either. He just did what he's always been doing. There's a, there's a lesson there for us. Christians. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making his petition and plea before God. They came near and said before the king, concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any God or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah pays no attention to you O king or the injunction that you've signed but makes his petition 3 times a day the king when he heard these words was much distressed and set his mind to deliver and set his mind to deliver Daniel and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him so i'm imagining the king going oh no what have i done i've been trapped I've been trapped in this political trap, and now I've got to contact all my attorneys and stuff and come in and say, okay, how can we circumvent this law that I just made? But uh, as that was going on, these men came, verse 15, by agreement to the king and said to the king, uh, king, know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance be made that the king establishes can be changed." Then the king commanded that Daniel was brought and cast him into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went into his palace and slept and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. Question. For you, the group, Daniel knew this was going on, right? Yeah, he knew this was happening. And he knew what the penalty was. He, he did it anyway. Question, did Daniel know, as he was being placed in the lion's den, what God's will was for his life, whether he would live or die? Did he know? No. And we don't either. Now, as we know from the rest of the story, not only did God deliver him, I mean, Daniel told the king later that an angel came and stopped the mouths of the lions and Daniel was delivered out of the lion's den and then the king put those bad satraps or whatever, they put them in the lion's den in which the lions must have been, they were so hungry, they immediately devoured them and crushed their bones and then the king went on to make a decree about the God of Daniel. So so now the, the, the name of God is getting out into the Persian empire. We know that's the way that unfolded. But in the moment, when Daniel was being placed into the lion's den, did he know God's sovereign will? And the answer is he did not, and we don't either. Our job, brothers and sisters, our job is to continue to do good. And if in doing that good, we suffer for it, our job is to continue to do good. To continue to be a witness, to continue to speak the gospel, to proclaim what God has said in His Word as plainly and clearly, not provocatively, We, we, we must speak the truth in love, right? We have to understand where the other person is in their spiritual journey and try to speak to them in such a way that's winsome and that, that, woos them to that good shepherd that tells them about the gospel, about the one who was perfect, who suffered so mightily, and then laid down his life for them. We are to continue to do good, and if in doing that good we suffer, then we continue to do good. And when you take that idea, when you take that idea and you go back and look at the things that we've just looked at about Suffering under an unjust boss, or perhaps even suffering under an unjust, uh, suffering, submitting ourselves to a government that may not be biblical or whatever, may not, may, may be fully corrupted. And I'm no fool, I think our government's very corrupted. Uh, it, it helps us to understand what our role here is. Should we work for government reform? Yeah, I think that's a good thing to work for. Uh, but how we do it, how we do it is just important as important as doing it. And, and prioritizing our gospel opportunities above other things is also key. I, I go back to Daniel just for a moment to say this. I, I've said this often, and I'm going to say it again this morning just to remind ourselves of it. If the Lord, in his sovereign plan, puts us in a situation where, where we need to speak the truth and we need to do so in love, and in doing so, we die... Where do we go the instant that our life is snuffed from our bodies? We go, we, we go to be with the Lord. Uh, in my book, that's a win. All right? So if, if we speak the truth in love and we suffer for it, but the Lord chooses not to take us off of this earth or not to kill, uh, allow us to be killed, what do we get to do more of tomorrow? More ministry. Right? In my book, that's a win. It's hard, but it's a win. Right? So we... We've got to continuously remind ourselves, brothers and sisters, that we of all people on the face of the planet are in the ultimate win-win situation. I'm not saying it's going to be easy because we're, I'm telling you that this this passage is reminding us that the way of Christ is a way of suffering. the The opinions that we express as we go out into the culture are not popular ones and they are becoming less and less popular by the moment. Our job is to simply speak the truth in love, to bear witness of the God who saved us and let the chips fall where they may, not pretending to understand God's sovereign will, but instead practicing God's revealed will. Now, I can't tell you how to work that out in every single situation If you want to come talk to me or or whatever about a specific situation that you're facing, I know that in this room we have people that are working in government agencies that are are pushing doctrines that you don't agree with. And at first it comes to you, uh, or you're working in organizations that are, large organizations that are pushing things at you that you don't agree with. And at first, those things that are being pushed at you come with an opt-out. Yeah, you don't need to participate in this if you don't want to. But later it becomes, we're offering this document and we're asking everyone to sign it, but it's okay if you don't sign it, but you know they know who doesn't sign it, right? And then later it becomes, this is mandatory, you must go through this training and you must, you must at least you know, give signal that you agree with it to the point where uh, you may find that your conscience is informing you that it's time to either stand up and speak the truth or if that becomes impossible for you to leave that position. Um, these are decisions that are not easy, but that these are decisions that you have to weigh. Am I going to be able to do what God has called me to do here or not? The question was, How should Christians think about suffering? And the answer is this. Christians should consider suffering part of normal life in following Jesus and that we should follow his example. And specifically what I mean by that is that when we suffer, we follow Jesus' example of not sinning against the person, not not being deceitful, not reviling them, not threatening them, but instead choosing to trust God for the parts that are coming down the road that we can't see, his sovereign will. Trust that God, trust that God has a plan and a purpose for the current situation that we find ourselves in. and That He's asking us, as His people, to rise up, to do His will, to love God with everything that we've got, to love others as ourselves, to be a kingdom of a royal priesthood, right? A royal priesthood that's out there representing Christ everywhere we go, in the workplace at leisure, in the marketplace, in our families, everywhere. So some possible applications. I say possible because God may be convicting you already of some things that you need to change. And if that's true, then do that. Don't do this. But here's some things that you can think about if that hasn't happened yet. And that's, first of all, be practicing God's revealed will. What do I mean by that? I mean, I don't know... (sighs) I don't know anybody in our church who has a, including myself, who is, who is perfectly carrying out and practicing everything that God's word instructs us to do. I don't know anybody who's doing that. Some of you are doing better in these areas. Others are doing better in those areas. But uh, we, continu- we can continue to practice doing what God has told us to do in his word. It's going to take us the rest of our lives to even get halfway good at some of this stuff. So let's get cracking. Let's not pretend to know God's sovereign will. Instead, let's practice God's revealed will. Secondly, accept that you will suffer for it, right? Accept that you will suffer for it. Accept, and the suffering may look as simple as you go up to someone and you try to share the gospel and they say, get away from me, you crazy Christian. Okay, well, that's that's on the scale of suffering. That's like a 0.2, but, um, you know, it, just accept that that's, that's what's gonna happen. Now, if you went up... If you went up like uh, an idiot, you know, and and uh, you know, pushed them into a corner and said, "I'm going to tell you about Jesus, whether you want to or not," then the suffering that you receive is due. You know, you, you you're due for that. Don't do that. That's assault. Yeah, we, we don't break the law. Okay. Thirdly, is trust God for the results. Trust God for the results. I don't know. I don't know why we're living in a time when our culture seems so bent on denying everything that God says is good and accepting everything that God says is detestable. I don't know why we're living in that time right now. I can't explain it. All I can tell you is I know for sure that we are called to represent him in this culture and that in doing so, we're gonna suffer for it and that we should expect that. And not only that, but we should, we should, uh, like the apostles, we should rejoice that we've been counted worthy to do so. That's a hard pill to swallow. Father, give us strength. We are our, our alien status on this earth is becoming more and more hard to conceal every day. As we try to progress towards Christ-likeness and the world tries as hard as it can to progress away from that. And so we do tend to stick out more like sore thumbs than ever before. Father, let us not take our eyes off of what you've told us to do. The gospel is such a beautiful and glorious thing. Let us not hide it under a bushel, but to let it shine. And Father, I pray that in doing so, as we, as we uh, take the opportunities that you so richly provide to us to share the good news, that others would be attracted to your light. That others might give their lives to you by trusting your son, Jesus Christ, and that they may begin down the road of sanctification. For your glory and your honor alone, in Jesus' name, amen.